Hi, this is Ben Zorns of the Ellers Mission Society. In this message entitled The Floating Axe Head, Pastor Eric Ludy builds a case for the fact that God is intricately interested in the seemingly insignificant details of our existence. God knows precisely what we need in order to proceed with His calling upon us. And if we remain steadfast in abiding in Him, He goes above and beyond to demonstrate in both the big and small aspects of our lives how He alone is God. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Father, what a privilege it is to be brought into your presence via the blood of Jesus Christ. We have no merit of our own, and we proclaim that to the heavenlies, that this was not because of our doing. This was because of your doing. Lord, every aspect of our salvation has been won and wrought by Jesus Christ. And we celebrate the great life of Jesus the great crowning moment of his life in his crucifixion and in his death. We reckon his death our own, his burial, the burial of our own old nature, the flesh, and his resurrection, our resurrection, because we are found in him, and therefore where he goes, he takes us. And he has not just gone to the cross and gone to the tomb and risen again, but he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, And we find ourselves seated in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. Though our bodies be here, we are secured in the very presence of God. And the very presence of God has been ushered forth into our very beings. That we might be able to live a life on earth that otherwise would be impossible to live. By the power of Almighty God dwelling within. We thank you for the good news We thank you for this brilliant plan. And may we live lives worthy of it. Lord Jesus, we esteem you. We worship you. You are holy, 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 magnificent, majestic, and in every way perfect. And Lord Jesus, why you choose human messengers to relay your perfect truth is befuddling to each one of us. But Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take this imperfect vessel today and that you would speak through me and that you would help this message be so much more than it would be if it was just out of my own faculties and abilities and intellect. Spirit of God, come and bring glory to Jesus Christ. Amen. Floating axe head. Now, for those of you that know I like titles, I actually planned on changing this title, but could not come up with something better. See, I know how the broad audience out there uh, responds to the sermons online. It has to have a good title. Otherwise, they pick it around the message. I'm not going to listen to that. It's not as good of a title as this one. And so this one might not get as much attention online. At the same time, it might intrigue someone, the floating axe head. You know that this is a biblical story? There was, in history, an axe head made of iron that actually floated. Have you ever heard of floating iron? Isn't that fascinating? Well, we're going to talk about it today. And the message is more than that. However, this floating axe head symbolizes something. 
And in a sense, before we even embark upon this, I want you to realize that you're going to find a kinship with this axe head because in some regards, this axe head is you. You see, you are in an impossible situation. There is nothing in you. The constitution of your spiritual makeup, the way it is because of the warping of sin upon you, has caused it to be that you only sink as opposed to rise. You have no ability to rise up to the heavenlies. You have no capacity inside your being to be able to make iron float. So, in a sense, your soul is as iron thrown into the Jordan River, and instead of floating, it drops straight to the bottom. But as we study this story, you'll read this. Now, this is just one application of it, but I want you to take this message personally. And I want you to realize that something has been done to make iron float. In the name of Jesus. <clears throat> That's a phrase that I would probably guess that most of us in here have wielded at some point in time or another. And most of us, we wield it not because we have any clue what it means, but because it's just one of those taglines that because of our Christian culture, we throw onto the end of a prayer. Because we want our prayer to count. And the way we've been groomed in prayer is we pray our prayer, and then we have this awkward moment. Because we're like, well, I need to put the tag on. If I got interrupted, imagine I prayed for 15 minutes. And then right before the end of the prayer, something happened that took my attention off of the prayer, and I got distracted. Some of us would conclude, well, you didn't get the final tag in of in the name of Jesus, amen? And as a result, your whole prayer of 15 minutes is discounted in heaven. It's like somehow that's the ticket that gets your prayer into the throne room. That is myth. That is not how it works. Okay? The reason we would say something like in the name of Jesus Amen, is because we're making a statement of our position in prayer. Your position to be able to reach the throne room is one that is in Christ Jesus. You are praying in a position of authority. Now, we that have entered into Jesus Christ understand this. Ellerslie, as we're going through the exhaustive discipleship process, we are teaching you about the significance of position. Location, location, location. We're like the ultimate realtors. Because we're saying that unless, for instance, back in Noah's day, you could be anywhere else on earth. But if you're not in that ark, when those rains come, you're in the wrong position. And it's only that ark and being in that ark that secures you. The same thing is true with Jesus Christ. You could be anywhere on earth. But if you're not in Jesus Christ, you are in the wrong location. And so we enter into Christ, and then we remain and abide in Christ. And that is the Christian's position. And as a result, because we are in Christ Jesus, where he goes, we go. And I know he lived 2,000 years ago, and this can be a little confusing, but this is the concept of position. We enter into Christ now, and we realize that even 2,000 years ago, we were in him. And so when he died, his death was our death. We had a covenant with death. And it, as long as we were entered into a covenant with death, we were eternally separated from the Most High God. And we cannot exit a covenant without a severing, without a death. And so Christ's death, when we entered into it, became our death. And that covenant with death was annulled. 
And it freed us to enter into a new covenant in his blood. And so we enter into Christ and we are taken to the cross. We enter into Christ and we share in his sufferings. His death becomes our death. His ability in that cross is then shared and bequeathed to us. His burial is a burial of our old behavior. And then his resurrection is newness of life for us. We can't find that newness of life any other way. But unless we are in him. His death, our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection, our resurrection. And then his ascension. He goes to the right hand of the Father and is seated in the position of all authority. And, and we think of Jesus being up there in this great, powerful position. In Ephesians 1, it says, and all things are under his feet. And we believe it. However, if you don't know your position, then you don't know how to pray. Because prayer stems from position. We're not just hoping and wishful in our prayers. We're in a position in Christ Jesus. We are seated in him in heavenly places. And if all things are under his feet, who are you in? We're the body of Christ, which means we function as his body functions. Where's his body? It's at the right hand of the Father. We are the physical representation of his authority here on earth. If all things are under his feet, all things are under your feet. Not because you did anything. It's because of his position. And you are in him, seated at the right hand of the Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. I am in Christ. And the position I wield for this prayer is not one of my own merit. It's not based on my own wishful thinking. I am seated in Christ Jesus. And I pray from that position of authority. And all hell, you know what that means. So back off. Amen. <laughs> That's authority. This is not just something you tag onto the end of a dinner prayer, you know, for your potatoes and your cabbage, so that you could be secure from any poisonous harm and effects it may have. This is the way most of us have treated the concept. I would like us to realize that God has given us a position. And it's not to be trivialized on this earth. It's not just for little dinners that you're going to have. And by the way, I think it's perfectly respectful to pray over a meal and to acknowledge the giver of that meal. However, there's more to prayer than dinner prayer. You have a position on this earth, and if Christians don't wield their position, then the enemy still maintains his position in this world. It's when Christians recognize the work of the cross that all hell has to back off. In the name of Jesus. The word for name is onama. It sounds like one of those Native American Indian words. You know, it's like, I am onama. You know, like, oh no. Uh, it's a very strong and sort of word in the Greek. The name, which it means, the name, the reputation, the substance of a person. You see, in your name, is your substance, it's your reputation, it's that which goes before you. You either have a good name or you have a bad name. But it doesn't necessarily mean you know, that I'm standing here, it's just in the name of Eric. If you're representing Eric, you don't have to see Eric, but my reputation follows. If I give an Ellerslie intern and I say, go tell them that this is what I'm saying, then if they take that intern and they mistreat them, they're actually mistreating me. And so that person would represent me. They are bearing the authority 
of the one that sent them. We do what we do in the name of Jesus Christ. It's one's rank, authority, interest, pleasure, command, excellence, and deeds. It's all that they are. All that comes to one's mind when remembrance, in, in remembrance of a person. It's the onoma. The onoma of Christ. Is the, name of Christ. the name of Christ is the essence of his person. His nature, his preeminence, his majesty, his kingly rake, his all-loving, his all-compassing authority, his holy loving interests, his divine pleasures, his timeless commands, his perfect virtue, and his exemplary deeds. To pray or speak in the onoma of Christ is to do a thing by his command, fortified in his all-encompassing authority, exerting his kingly rank, his holy loving interest, his divine pleasure, his timeless command, acting on his behalf and promoting his cause in this earth. You need to be watchful if you're going to do things in the name of Jesus. Because if you're doing something in the name of Jesus, then people should be able to look at you and see the behavior, the nature, the attitude of the one you represent. You're an ambassador. Therefore, you must resemble the one that sends you. And so if you are going to bear that name, if you're going to pray anything, make sure it is in alignment with his agenda. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, we pray in accordance with his mind, with his command. The king sends us forth, and we pray for it. You know, Scripture is replete with a clear understanding of how we ought to be praying. And there are things that God wants to accomplish in this earth that most of us are skittish about. We're like, I don't, I don't know if God actually wants to deal with that. Well, you know what? He doesn't change from yesterday to today, even unto forever. He's the same. There is no shadow of turning in him. So when he clarifies his agenda, he didn't stutter. He says, this is still my agenda. This is still what I want to accomplish. Our God has made his mission for the saints of God very clear. It is our job to understand our position and believe and to take that rightful position and then to exert the authority that he has gained on that cross and the purchase that he has gained on that cross and then we bring it to bear in this world. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we pray. So God, you have something that's accomplished and very real in heaven. My job is to see it come down here. And we pray in the name of Jesus. The floating axe head. I'm gonna read you a little story. Before I go to the next slide, I wanna give you a little background here. <clears throat> we have a character named Elisha. Most of us are familiar with the prophet Elijah. Elisha is, for whatever reason, a little lesser known, and I'm not exactly sure why, because Elisha actually had a double portion of what Elijah had. And yet, Elisha seems to be the lesser known prophet. I'm not exactly sure how that worked, because if you count up the miracles of Elijah and of Elisha, Elisha has exactly double. You see, when Elijah was ascending in a whirlwind, in a chariot, horses and chariots of fire, I mean, talk about an exciting moment, Elijah the prophet literally, as we have in recorded biblical history, never died. A little strange, I realize that. And Elisha, before Elijah was taken up, was asked a question by Elijah. And Elijah says to Elisha, ask whatever you want of me. 
and I'll give it to you. And Elisha asks for the strangest thing. It's actually one of the most extraordinary requests ever made in the Bible. I would like a double portion of the spirit that you have. And even Elijah was taken aback by that. And he goes, well, you've asked a hard thing. And this is what he says. If you see me taken up, you will know that you've received what you asked. What an amazing moment in the Bible it is when, when it says that Elisha saw it. And so you need to also realize how brilliant God is to show, and actually if you calculate the number of miracles that Elijah did and Elisha did, it's exactly double. However, when Elisha died, it was actually one short of double. And then, so, I mean, if you're a good Jew, you're going to be counting, I'm going, huh, what, one short? Well, you know, God's sovereign. (laughs) However, these guys are carrying around a dead body, and they don't know where to put it, and so they throw it into a tomb. It just happens to be Elisha's tomb. And the guy pops back to life. And God goes, double. <laughs> it's amazing to think who this man is. Okay, because we reverence, we have such an esteem for Elijah, who prayed and the heavens were closed for three and a half years and it did not rain, who called down fire from heaven in front of all of Israel. Elijah, okay, that's one extraordinary character, but the one who would follow is Elisha. Now, I want you to realize how significant it is in the New Testament when it says that the apostles saw him ascend. They saw it. This is no small thing because the church is the one that carries the mantle. Elisha picks up the mantle of Elijah, comes to the river Jordan, strikes it, and says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And it parts. And he actually works even greater exploits, greater wonders than the great prophet himself. The great prophet Jesus. Who could ever outdo Jesus? Jesus entering into all of us as a body of Christ is intended to do even greater works. Startling, I know, and hard to swallow. Yes, I realize this. But when you begin to understand what Jesus Christ purchased on that cross, it is staggering. We have a story, and it is such a small little story, it is almost embarrassing that it's included in the text of Scripture. Now, the reason I say it that way is because all throughout Scripture, God seems to be selecting only the things that are most necessary. Because there are moments in scripture where he gives no detail. In fact, he leaves out so much that all of us are just sitting there with bated breath going, is that all, God? Is that all you're going to tell me? How about the three sons of Anak, the three greatest legendary giants of all time, are still on the top of Mount Hebron, even after five years of conquest in the land of Canaan. The Israelites have taken down all their oppressors, all the enemy empires, except for the three sons of Anak, the legendary huge giant beasts of men. And no one dared touch them. And an 85-year-old man named Caleb comes up to Joshua and says, Moses promised me that mountain. Give me the mountain of giants. An 85-year-old man leads the company up Mount Hebron. And all it says in Scripture is, and he expelled them thence. 
That's all you're giving us, God. That's it. Okay, you need to realize we're reading a Bible where God is selecting only that which is most necessary to reveal his nature here on earth. You don't need to know that. No, you don't need to know that. Well, God, I'd really like to know. And he has a name given him that, that only he knows, or only the Father knows. Is that how it says it? Only the Father knows? He has a name, speaking of Jesus in Revelation, he has a name given him that only the Father knows. Could you give us a hint? What is it? Don't tell us about a name if you're not going to tell us what the name is. God loves this sort of thing. You have to realize how to approach the word of God, and that is that every jot and every tittle matters. It's a supernatural book. It is not a book of just men's thoughts and random sayings. Oh, I feel like writing about this story because my great aunt Martha was related to that guy. That isn't how the Bible was constructed. It was constructed purposely, intentionally, by the mind of God himself as he carried along men that were moved by the Spirit of God to write. So every word matters. Now I'm going to introduce you to some words that would seemingly not have any value or any merit. In fact, the stories surrounding this little story, this little diminutive story, are so epic in size that it actually draws such a contrast with this little story that it's sort of embarrassing. Like, why did they write this? Okay, and you'll understand as we go through this. But Elisha has been asked by a group of prophets to come down and help them construct a prophet house. Okay, we, as far as I know in Scripture, there's no other mention of this prophet house. It's not ever referred to in any other time in Scripture, so it doesn't seem to have a lot of significance. And Elisha just says, okay, I'll come down and help you build it. And then we come to our story. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, we don't even know who the one was. It's just some guy. We're assuming he's a prophet. As one is cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Okay, now let's stop there. How big of a deal is that? Does that sound like a significant thing? Okay, some guy is hacking away. And as he goes back, he's like, whoop. The axe head goes flying off. It doesn't even hit anyone. And it goes, splash. Okay? Most of us are like, all right, not a story significant enough for the Bible. All right, there are so many massive moments in the Bible, I don't think that one belongs. Some guy who we don't even know his name is hacking away with an axe and his iron axe head goes flying. Let the iron axe head be. Now listen to how much more intense it gets. And, he, and the axe head, iron axe head fell into the water and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Is that enough to move you? Here's what the great prophet could say. I'm sorry to hear that. Next time you might want to check the stability of your axe before you start hacking away with it. Okay? If it's borrowed, that means that you should probably save up money and replace it for him. Okay? That's what we do in the Hebrew culture. You know, we have equity and retribution for things like this. And so, why don't you go and save up, you know, in your little profit budget and buy him a new axe head. It's not like he accidentally threw the guy's entire sheep herd into the river. 
He's like, oh no, that would take a lifetime to repay. This is an iron accent. Okay, so you, you following me and saying, this is actually very, very small and insignificant. And yet God zooms in and he says, people of God, notice this. And we're like, are you sure you want us to notice this? Are you sure this isn't an accidental entry in the biblical record? People of God, focus. So the man of God, Elisha, said, where did it fall? He's interested to know where it fell. And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. That little diddly squat story made it into scripture. It's impressive, don't get me wrong. It's very interesting to see that somehow in history, a man did this little magic trick and threw in a stick and caused iron to float. Is it just a magic trick? Is this just some small diddly squat story or could this be the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now I know it doesn't look like it on the outside, but I want you to realize that we are talking about some of the most monstrous events that are taking place right before this story and right after this story. I mean huge, that involve nations coming against nations in the clashes of the titans. And in the midst of it, we have this little story. And God says, pause, focus, don't miss this. Whatsoever. There's a statement in John that says, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. One of the struggles that we have as Christians, statements like this, because many of us have asked for things over the years, you know, as we get inspired by such a scripture, and we can't quite figure out why our prayer life doesn't seem to match up with what Jesus says. So most of us actually give up our prayer life, truly. Okay, I'm not saying you never pray, but I'm saying we give up on the concept that God is a prayer-answering God, and most of us actually conclude that God wants us to pray for th spiritual therapy. He doesn't actually intend to answer our prayers, he just knows it's good for us, sort of like eating our vegetables. Okay, so we pray because, you know, that's part of the health routine for the Christian, not because we actually expect heaven and earth to shift in their positions, mountains to be picked up and thrown into the sea, water to become pavement beneath our feet, winds and rains to cease and be still. We don't expect that. And so we've given up believing in our big God. The key for prayer and the key for the whatsoever is you must be in the name. You must be in position to do it. Most of us have wielded a confidence in whatsoever when we were young and childlike in our faith, but we weren't discipled to understand how to pray the whatsoever. We prayed for things that were not in concord with his commission, with his purposes. And it's very clear in scripture that if you pray errant prayers, in other words, prayers that are out of bounds with what he is attempting to do on this earth, he doesn't answer them. If you pray prayers to spend on your lusts and your flesh, he will not answer those prayers. He makes that clear in scripture. But most of us didn't ever get trained in that, and as a result, we tried our whatsoever prayer when we prayed for the Lamborghini when we were 13 years old, or to win the lottery uh, when we were 17, and also 72, 
We tried these things and we can't figure out, well, God, you said ask whatsoever in my name. You must know what it means to bear the name of Jesus and to be in the name of Jesus. It's not a small thing, but I want you to realize, for those of us in here that are beginning to learn to wield the name of Jesus Christ, there can even be a sheepishness in prayer too. Well, I don't want to presume upon God. You know, I I think it's a wonderful thing to have the fear of God upon you and to not want to presume upon God. However, the word of God is written so that you would not need to be concerned about presuming upon God in certain things. He makes it clear, ask. This is what I'm about. This is how you obey me. This is how you honor me. You ask for that. Go do it. You see, you are commissioned to become a house fit for a king. You are commissioned to reveal the manifold wisdom of Jesus Christ to all the universe. Good luck. You can't do that in your own strength. And so guess what you need? You need to ask. That's the pattern. God sets before you the impossible task. You say, I can't do that. He goes, I know, but I can in you. You know what I need to accomplish, so you know to ask me. And when you ask, I will equip. When you ask, I will enable. You have a little mountain in your way. It doesn't matter if it's a huge mountain like the Rocky Mountains. What about a little molehill? That's what God starts us with. God, I have a molehill in my way. I, I don't know how to get through that. He says, what did, what's your commission? Well, I'm supposed to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to do. I'm to show and reveal the divine nature. In other words, my every attitude, my every word, my every thought is supposed to resemble yours. I can't do that. He goes, do you want some help? Do you want some help with that molehill? Are you interested in that molehill? That's the key question for us. We know that God is interested in epic, grand things. What we struggle with is the molehills. We struggle with the axe heads. And as a result, many of us that are even becoming confident to begin to ask God for the things that we know are clear in his word, we struggle with the axe heads. It's a borrowed axe head, okay? It's not that big of a deal. It went flying off into the Jordan. Most of us would struggle with being the one who says, alas, master, it was borrowed. You don't want to borrow or uh, bother the great prophet, He has other things to attend to. It's just an accent. In fact, the very thing that we could analyze that story and say is the very reason why most of us would never bring it up and the reason why most of us wouldn't include it in our version of the Bible. You see, our version of the Bible would trim out this story because God is big and that's small. And yet, what does God's version of the Bible say? Hey, hey, don't overlook the small things because I don't. Every small thing in your life matters to God. I just made a huge statement there, by the way. Every small thing in your life matters to the great prophet, Jesus Christ. That's the way he thinks. He's not just interested in the huge things. In fact, if you don't learn to turn over the small things to him, do you know that you will not be fit for the big things? You know what he trains us on? the small things. He trains us on that little molehill. You know that if you don't have confidence that he can mow down that molehill in front of you, you're definitely not going to have confidence that he's going to be able to move a mountain. He trains you in faith on the molehill. 
And so if we overlook the molehill, if we overlook the accent and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's too small for God. Suddenly, when your bus goes careening into the Jordan, you don't have any more confidence in that because you were never trained and groomed on the accent. Whatsoever. This is, a, this is just a quick little tour of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that an accent isn't necessarily the life of Jesus Christ. It is the word of God, and he's the word of God made flesh. But the rest of these stories are going to uh, be in the New Testament. But an accent, as we've just said, seemingly insignificant, seemingly to be a distraction from the rest of the flow of the great text of Scripture, the magnificent, majestic text of Scripture. And we get this little detour here into an axe head story. God says, that's not a detour. That's a necessary stop because if you don't see this, you will miss my nature and you will miss the application of what I intend to do in and through the gospel in your life. You know what they're building? They're building the prophet's house. Hmm. Hmm. I want you to allow yourself to see this story with a little more grandeur, to realize that you are the house of God. And the great purpose is God is establishing a spiritual house known as the church of Jesus Christ. And to be able to build that house, guess what? You need that accent. Have you ever tried chopping out a tree with a piece of wood? Hitting that wood without that accent you will not be able to accomplish it. It may seem small, but guess what? God says, you need that accent. Like, yeah, but it seems so small, God. Where did it drop? Where did it fall? Show it to me. You need that. Like, are you sure I need that? Believe me, you cannot chop down the tree that you will need to put into that side of the structure unless you have that accent. A wedding feast. Now, most of us look at the wedding in Cana as Jesus sort of warming up. It's like that's his first miracle, and he hasn't done these miracles before, so he sort of spent it in an odd place. His great first miracle. It's a wedding. You know that we don't even know whose wedding it was? It's just some wedding. And what he does, let's be honest, seems a little superfluous. Okay? They have already had the great wine that's come out. They're all celebrating, and the Jewish culture's tradition is that then the lesser wines will come out. I don't know if that's because everyone's a little, you know, uh, tipsy and they can't recognize good wine from, good, uh, from bad wine. I don't know. I don't know the logic behind this. But all I know is that that's the tradition that we see in scriptures is denoted. And yet Jesus is asked to help. And Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. And it's a surprising shift in this wedding. And people are shocked by this. However, it doesn't have a lot of hoopla. It doesn't have a lot of shing-jing to it. Fireworks that are going off saying, did you see that? For most of us, we'd say, that's an odd choice for your first miracle. He selected a wedding. I don't think that's an accident. Because the entire covenant that he came to produce in his blood is based on the principle of wine. This is not an accident. However, we can easily marginalize it and trivialize it. And I want you to realize the small things are very big in Scripture. However, the small things in your life are very big in your life. And so if you allow God to make the small things in your life significant to him, he cares about it. You know, he cares 
about, you know, if I was going to give you a quick tour in my life of things that could seem small. I have a little one that's having a tough time uh, with potty training right now. You don't pray about that. You just work it through. And we all know, every parent in here knows that a child will learn how to do it. Okay? It sort of just goes with the territory. It will happen. Because all of us as parents have that moment of panic, you know, where we picture our 18-year-old with a diaper. Uh, And, you know, it's just like, no! It will happen. They will learn how to do these things. However, does it matter to God? Of course it does. It's part of the framework of my life and my calling. And these things can easily become distractions, and God cares about even the small things. Does he care about my finances? Of course he does. Does he care about my schooling, that I would have wisdom to know how to properly direct and train my children? Of course he does. They could seem small. I have some very epic and big things in my life that I do. And I could easily say, well, that's where I need God's wisdom. When I go to a time of prayer, I'm only going to pray about the big things. You know that when I go to a time of prayer, I pray about every significant thing that is before me to lay it before God and say, God, I know you value it. There's certain things that are small and God just says, I have it under control. I don't need to pray about it anymore. I'm just confident. It's dealt with. It's under control. I walk confidently. But everything is brought to my God. Everything, small and great, because he cares and this life needs to be able to move forward into handling those epic things well. Therefore, the small things I could trip over if those aren't dealt with well. A meal in the boondocks. Jesus is talking to quite a few thousand people. I mean, we know that there was just 5,000 men. How many women and children? I'm not exactly sure, but we're talking a lot of people. Comes to a point in the day where everyone would be hungry. I don't know if it was lunch or dinner, but they're hungry. I just want to give you a little insight into how Eric would naturally respond to this situation. <clears throat> Jesus, you know, I, know, I know it's you know, mealtime, but what they're learning from you is so important. Why don't you just say, ask them to fast a meal? I mean, how hard is that? We don't need to make a big deal out of this. Just fast the meal. And if, by the way, if everyone does need to go, just let them go home and get some food. They can come back tomorrow. What is the big deal? It's a big deal to Jesus Christ. The disciples didn't see it, that Jesus is interested even in their digestive system. He knows how he built them. He's the creator. And he created hunger. And he knew it was taking place inside of them. And the fact that your creator in a situation like that would take note of it and say, that matters to me. You know, it's actually rather amazing. Most of us, when we see the feeding of the 5,000, we're focused on the miracle dimension of it, but I want you to focus on the nature of God dimension of it because that's his nature. Sure, he multiplied fishes and loaves and fed 5,000 plus, and that is astounding. I don't want you to not think about it, but I want you to realize don't overlook the nature of your God in this. A quicker way across the lake. Uh, Jesus needs to get across the lake. What would your recommendation be to him? Well, okay, Jesus, I've got a really nice rowboat here. And then we could walk around the lake. Let's see, what other options do we have? Well, that's it. I mean, what? You have a boat, and you can walk. And Jesus goes, you know what? I just have a hankering of walking straight across today. You see, he didn't need to do that. 
And yet, as a statement to his apostles, his disciples at the time, he's basically saying, do you see this? All things are under my feet. All the laws of nature actually are trumped by your creator. You need not fear anything. No matter what circumstance you may be in, I want you to realize that the God who created you will supply an avenue across. You didn't have to do that. We all know that, that walking on water is not necessarily a provision of the gospel in the sense of salvation, but it's a provision of a creator that if ever there is need to accomplish that which is impossible in your life, and a mountain stands before you, a storm is, is brewing, Water stands between you. It's a gulf between you and what you must do for the glory of God. You can trust that it will become concrete beneath your feet. You can trust that that winds and that rains will be stilled. You can trust that that mountain will be picked up and hurled into the sea. Because of the God you serve, you must know his nature. Nothing is too small and nothing is too big. God! Introducing God. A withering, withering a fig tree. Why does God zoom in and give us that, that picture? Jesus is walking along and sees this fig tree that should be producing fruit. See, what's the good of a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit? Nothing. And Jesus makes that clear. And he literally curses the, the fig tree. And don't you feel bad for the fig tree? It's like, that poor fig tree. That fig tree is a symbol. If you're not producing fruit, then you have no purpose. Your purpose is completely derived from the fact that Jesus rescues you and changes you and then produces the fruit of his life in and through you. That the fact that God zooms in with his lens, his camera lens, as you're going through scripture, zooms in and says, do you see this? All these things matter. God is making a statement. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you says Jesus, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Building, the building of the sacred house. Now, like I said, we have Elisha that's being invited down. Now, Elisha, whether or not he's a direct parallel or not with the church of Jesus Christ, or he's the second, he's the one that bears the mantle of the first Okay, which is what the church is. We're the second born, and we are the ones that bear the anointing or the power that was purchased by the original prophet, by Jesus Christ, the first. But they're inviting him down to help build a house for the prophets, the ones that are bearers of the Spirit of God and the Word of God for their generation. And so we have the building of the sacred house, Zechariah says, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. You know that Jesus, is one of his names in the Old Testament is the branch. Who, who would ever think of naming Jesus the branch? God. You know what a branch is? It's something that was once attached to a tree that is cut off. And Jesus in, in various places in Scripture is that branch that was lopped off. Okay, the Feast of Tabernacles, for those students that remember in the, the message Beautified by a Scar, you have the freshly cut branch that end, ends up being put together and built into what? A tent or a tabernacle or a house. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is. It's a freshly cut branch 
that then is used to build the house. Well, what's Jesus? He's the branch that was lopped off and cut off. He was, he was literally condemned, if you will. He became sin for us. He was chopped off. Though he was lush and green, he was chopped off. He became a stick, if you will. And so what we see is in Elisha's story is he's literally throwing in a stick into the Jordan River. And he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So we have a branch that's building a temple. Okay? Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. No one argues. That's Jesus Christ spoken of in Zechariah. Paul says, know you not that you are the temple of God? Don't you realize that this temple that Jesus built, when he says, tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days, and they're chuckling and laughing and mocking and scorning him, saying, this took 46 years to build. And then the little commentary underneath that statement says, but the temple of which he spoke was his body. Who is his body? You are. And he rebuilt it in three days. He built a house for the presence of God. It's you. He built a body, a temple. Know you not that you are that temple? He has established his life. His resurrection was the construction of a house called you. You are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Okay, so I think most of you are at least on board with that. That's what we, I mean, we talked about it all throughout the semester. But the concept is, you are a living house. In the Passover meal, when the blood of the lamb is put over it, it's a house of blood, it's a house that's living. That's why the lulab, when they were put together in the Feast of Tabernacles, is lush and green. It's a living house. It's freshly cut. That's what we are. We are a living house, which is literally filled with God's very presence. And this is the construction of the church of Jesus Christ. The pattern of construction. Without the axe head, we can't proceed. Would you guys agree with that? Imagine that we all lost our axe head. We're trying to build a house. I, I don't know about you, but this is going to be hard. If we don't have, because, you know, as far as we know, they didn't have saws back then, so they have axes. I'm not exactly sure about, you know, uh, tools back in that time. I actually never studied it, so I don't want to make any conclusive statements on what kind of tools they had and what kind they didn't. But in this situation, let's just imagine that axes are the tool of choice for hacking away at logs and making them fit as, as timber or as lumber to be able to fit into a house, okay? The sacred house. Well, we need that axe. Okay, how about your hand? Ah, yeah! Well, maybe some of you could pull that off. Uh, for the most part, you don't just wish over a log and say, oh, if you could just sort of cut into a few pieces like two by fours. Oh, if you could just. What you need is an axe head stuck on a stick so that you can effectively. Break down that wood to be useful for the purposes of construction. Did you know that there are tools that God desires to give to the church of Jesus Christ so that we would become as we ought to become? However, what if we lose those accents? What if we lose them? And what if we lose them and we don't ask 
for them to be brought back to us. Where are we at? Well, we're exactly where we're at today. You know that we're missing axe heads in the church of Jesus Christ today? We can't figure out how to build this thing in accordance with the word of God. It doesn't work. All of us are, have good intention, but the church isn't working. It isn't functioning as it once did. And so either we accept that, that all we have is sticks, and we're hitting our, uh, our wood with the stick, hoping that it will one day change its outcome, but sticks don't break down logs. We need the accent again. And what's supposed to happen in the church of Jesus Christ is we're supposed to start whispering amongst ourselves going, we're missing an accent. And someone else says, we're missing an accent. And someone else goes, we're missing an accent. And then what do we do? We fall to our knees. And we say, alas, master. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, alas, master. Is that coming out of our souls as the church of Jesus Christ? We may have lost something. I realize that something that we've lost, maybe some of you don't even see it as valuable. It's like, I, I don't know, we could probably replace it with something else here. Does someone have some plastic? I think a plastic axe head could possibly work. There's no counterfeits for this. You need the real thing. Some of us in the church of Jesus Christ have seen the plastic axe head. We've seen the counterfeit version of power, and as a result, we don't even believe in axe heads anymore. Well, I, I, don't, I don't like that axe head stuff. I just prefer my stick. <laughs> we don't want the axe head because we've seen the plastic version of it. The plastic version of it is a counterfeit and it will not accomplish that which only God can accomplish. We need the real thing. Some of us have an ache inside of us because we know that the church is supposed to be doing more. We know that we're supposed to be felling timber, but we don't know how. So many students that come to Ellerslie, that's their exact sentiments. I know that that tree's supposed to fall, and I know it's supposed to be a part of what God's building in my life, but I don't know what to do about it. And I don't know who to go to. No one in this generation seems to know anymore how to fell timber. Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, where did it fall? What an interesting, insightful question. I know it's very obvious in this story. Where did it fall? It will definitely help. But don't you think Elisha could throw the stick anywhere? God is very precise. When we get off course, do you know that he wants us to know where we got off course? He wants to correct the actual problem and not just stick a covering over it. God fixes things. And if we have a wrench in our engine, he wants to say, where did the wrench fall? And he wants to bring us to that exact spot and then bring it out so that the engine can now function as it ought to function. We have a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. We have problems in our souls. But God doesn't just cover them. He says, where did it fall? We say, God, the unforgiveness fell right here. The, the grievance was right here. The bitterness, the resentment right here. The lust came in through here. I allowed it in through my eyes. I turned it over in my mind, and now it has corrupted my soul. It fell right here. The fear, the anxiety, the trepidation, the foreboding, I let it in when this person spoke to me. I let it in and I allowed it to harm my soul. Alas, master, 
Something has fallen into disrepair in my soul. I am not as I ought to be to be able to build this house the way it's supposed to be built. Alas, master, he says, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And what, when we show him the place, when we show Jesus the place, he's the one showing us, by the way. That's what's funny about the way the spirit of God works in us. We don't even know what's wrong with us. And God will say, where did it fall? And he'll take our finger and point right at it. We'll go, it's right there. And what does he do? He cut off a stick and threw it in there. He cut off the branch and threw it in there. Jesus. Jesus. He saw our need and he threw in Jesus. And he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. You know, we use the term reckoning uh, here at Ellerslie. It's basically a concept of picking it up for yourself. God does something. It's your job now to, in faith, reach out and say, are you sure that, I, you mean I can actually take that axe head now? It's floating? Take it! What good is a floating axe head if you don't get it out of the water? God's brought it up for you. Now it's your job to grab a hold of it and stick it back on the stick. Our job is to reckon that which Christ has done. We didn't make the iron float but we can't leave the floating iron in the river. It's floating. We must go out, reach out and grab it and bring it into our souls and allow this sacred construction process to continue. So he reached out his hand and took it. Doesn't that sound like a great summary of our semester? So the Ellerslie student reached out his hand and took it. Pick it up for yourself retrieving the five lost axe heads of our time. You see, God has already done the work. The saints of God are responsible to reach out and take it. This is a little more challenging because than most of us can comprehend. When we're thinking of something just floating and sitting there, we expect to see it. But faith demands that we look at the story of the gospel and he says, the cross has been applied, it's been done. It's floating, Eric. But I, I, don't, I don't see it, God. Do you believe me? Yes. Then reach out and grab it. But what am I grabbing? I, I have to see it. I have to experience it first. I have to smell it, taste it, hear it. And so he says, you heard it in my word. It's a promise. And when I speak, I cannot lie. You take it at my word. Faith is an evidence and it's a substance of things unseen. It doesn't, it's not seen, but it's, it's there. And we believe it because God said it. And as we reach out to grab a hold of this, we have it in actual possession. If you needed $1,000 today, otherwise your world was coming to a quick conclusion. You needed $1,000 today. And imagine I said to you, I've wired $1,000 to your account. Take your checkbook and write it. You know what, if you write a false check, your situation and your punishment could even be greater. You need to have confidence in the one that tells you they wired the money. But if you know the money's there, guess what? You feel completely confident writing the check. If you don't know the money's there, guess what? You can't write the check. And that's how most Christians are functioning today. 
They know that God said the money's there, but they haven't seen the money themselves. And until they visit their bank account and see it in the vault, they will not believe it. And I know we've been moved off the silver and gold system in America, so don't think I actually think that there's gold in the vault. But spiritually speaking, we want the gold in the vault. We want to see it. We want to behold it. We want to hear it tinkle. We need to see it jingle before we'll write the check and God says you can have no part with me then. Faith is that which unlocks the promises of God and nothing else. Write the check based on the integrity of his word. He has promised and he cannot lie. Pick it up for yourself. Retrieving the five lost axe heads of our time. This uh, next little series comes from a message that we did, I think it was in April or May, called The Word of Our Testimony, where we had five different Ellerslie students and staff come up here and actually give testimony of what's happening here at Ellerslie. And these are the five lost axe heads that were mentioned in that message. Axe head number one, alas, master, there are divisions among us and each of us speaks a different message. Is there any hope? Should we just give up? Should we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh yeah, denominationalism is swept through the church of Jesus Christ. There's no hope for the church to ever be of one mind and one accord again. Never. Most of us would have concluded that a long time ago. Yeah, that's impossible. That's just the way things are. However, have you read scripture? Paul doesn't accept that. There should be no divisions among you. None. How in the world is that supposed to work? It's a lost accent unless we actually know how to work together, we can't build this thing. We can't bring about a manifold revelation of the purposes of Jesus Christ on earth, and Satan knows it. I'm not here as the ultimate accent. I'm saying he has it. His cross has purchased it. But we as the body must go and pick it up and once again be using his truth as our means instead of our experience of what we've all grown up in. We've grown up in a shattered church system. And we've accepted it. It's the equivalent of growing up with sticks and trying to hit timber and everyone giving up saying, yeah, you can't cut down timber. It's impossible. And then we say, well, look at here in the Bible. It says you can cut down trees. And we're like, yeah, but that's back then. No more. Uh, it's called the cessation. Uh, it's cessationism. It's all happened. It's all stopped. We have no more power to do anything that is necessary to equip the saints of God to build the church of God. Acts head number two. Alas, master, your church is weak, ruled by sin, controlled by the lusts of the flesh. The gospel has been emptied of its power to save. And most of us shrug our shoulders and say, that's just a lost Acts head. You know, we're not actually supposed to go after it. If we don't cry out for this Acts head to be restored to the church of Jesus Christ, to see us actually function as we ought to function. The power of the cross manifest in our lives, in our minds, in our bodies, so that we let not sin anymore rule in our mortal bodies, and that we would obey it in the lust thereof. That we can actually obey the text of Scripture, as opposed to come up with creative ways to justify why it couldn't have men meant exactly what it says. Acts said number three, alas, master. If we seek holiness, we become legalists. And if we seek happiness, we become drunken, fleshly fools. We have lost sight of a Christianity that boasts the triumphant realities of a holy and happy life. Most of us don't even think it's possible. If you want happiness, you stay away from holiness. If you want holiness, you just have to render yourself uh, very unhappy for the rest of your life. 
That's just how it works. Haven't you been a Christian? I believe in holiness because Jesus is holy. And the one who lives inside of his saints is Jesus, who is holy. And he actually sends forth his Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Father that does the sending. I have a hunch that his end game in the church is not the opposite of his very nature that is supposedly living inside of us. Holiness begets holiness. But holiness is not legalism. Holiness isn't self-effort, self-attempting to imitate God. Holiness is God inside of us, taking hold of this body, taking hold of this tongue, taking hold of this thought life, taking hold of these eyes, taking hold of these hands and these feet, this heart, and making it function as it ought to function. And that is as he is. Happiness, by the way, I'm the happiest guy on planet Earth. And I just said that I believe in holiness. Figure that one out. I love the two. They are inseparable. When you are holy, then suddenly your conscience is not weighted down. You're not burdened with the guilt and the accuser of the brethren no longer has access into your life. What's the natural result? You feel like jumping and I can't dance with a hoot. And even I'm like, ah. In other words, there's a transformation of the inner man. And it brings about a joy that is exceeding and great. The Greek word is agaleio, which is a springing up and a gushing forth of water like a fountain. And out of our bellies, out of our innermost man will flow rivers of living water. Joy. Exceeding joy. We need this axe head. Axe head number four. Alas, master, the up-and-coming generation is the most stupid generation ever. We have lost hope that the ship can be corrected. The church appears doomed. You know who got up during our one message when we were doing this and talked about this? It was Philip Hartman. 17-year-old that has like all sorts of patents and things. It's like, we'll defy that in front of everyone. But the rumor has it that you guys, the students here, are the dumbest generation ever. Well, you know what? We can't build the church of Jesus Christ with stupidity. We need the mind of Christ in the church. We need the wisdom of God planted within the church. We cannot accept this as just, oh, the time and the age in which we lived. That's why I'm such an idiot. Now, we will be an idiot to this world, but may we not be defined as an idiot in heaven's eyes. May we be the wisest amongst men. Paul was deemed an idiot and a fool, and guess what? He was the wisest among men. Jesus became a worm and no man hanging like a common criminal, not looking too intellectual in such a situation, not even opening his mouth, and yet he is wisdom personified and incarnate. I don't care what they think. We do this for Jesus Christ, and the only way to construct that house of God again on earth that will reveal the manifold wisdom of God is we need the axe head. Axe head number five, alas, master, the martyr's crown is no longer esteemed. We want life without the death. We want to see the victory of God in this earth without a cost to ourselves. When the church of Jesus Christ no longer is willing to give up its life, suddenly we cannot build this great house. This house is built by us being willing to do whatever it takes. Jesus, take this body, take my blood, spend it any way you see fit that this house might be built to bring glory to your name. Back in the first century, Christians actually had to be corrected by the church fathers because they were initiating their own martyrdom. 
Everyone wanted the martyr's crown. It was a huge problem, if you can believe it, in the church of Jesus Christ. That the church fathers had to issue an edict to say, Jesus loves the blood of his saints, but he also loves them to live out their life. And if he wants you alive, you need to allow that to be the case. Most of us were the exact opposite. Jesus loves the fact that you're alive. Don't get me wrong. But he also might want some of you to pour out your lives unto death. But none of us are willing anymore. We shrink back at even the notion of it. Alas, Master, we've lost a very key accent in the church of Jesus Christ. And we are cowardly. Cowardly. There was this one story that Leslie was telling me. Uh, it was in a... I think it was Annie that told Leslie about some story in a novel uh, about the persecuted church in China. And she was saying there was a raid that was brought upon the church and they had one minute to decide if they would recant uh, their position with Jesus and refute the, uh, the position of Jesus as Lord of their life, they could go free and just walk free. Nothing more would be said. If not, they would be set over to the other side of the wall and they would be shot to death after the minute. And even as Leslie was sharing that, I was literally evaluating in my soul how I'm responding in that minute. And what was the interesting twist on the story is she said it was actually the church themselves that came in because they had moles in their midst and they wanted to purge them. And so, could you imagine being the church member that's like, I'm willing. And then it's like, you're ready to go meet Jesus. Like, yeah, we just had to get those guys out. But I'm afraid that if that happened today, a good percentage of the church would leave. And I'm here to say that ought not be. Every single one of us that is of the genuine nature of God, born again in his blood, should say, I don't need a minute. You said over here? Absolutely. To die is gain. Without hesitation, we've already decided ahead of time. You don't make the decision then. You don't need a minute. All you need to do is hear the request and know it's your time. Thank you, Jesus. I'm over here. Those accents, let's, let's call them the promises of God. That which is needed. That which is needful for the church of God to be constructed in our day. For all the promises of God, all the axe heads that seem lost, but that are needful. In him are yes, and in him amen, under the glory of God through us. The answer is already yes and amen. Alas, master, he goes, yes, amen. Well, I didn't even mention anything. Yes, amen. You're in me. If you're in me, those axe heads are yours. They're yours. Take them. Pick it up for yourself. Construct that which I will enable you to instruct, that which I've given you an architectural design to construct. Do it. By my grace, do it. All right. We just focused on a little diddly squat accent. And I'm here to say that accent is no small thing. Any more than you are a small thing. Because you're like a little accent that could so easily be overlooked. And yet God sent his son to retrieve you out of the depths of sin. This story 
leads right in. The next line after the story that I've already read you is this story. And I want you to realize that this axe head story is the preparation in the soul to be what you must be for this next story. Most of us know that this next story belongs in Scripture. Oh, yeah, that, that fits it. But you will not be ready for it unless you have learned the life of God, the mind of God in the small matters. 2 Kings 6. Now, I skipped over a little paragraph chunk, and I'll just give it to you real quick. In fact, don't take any peeks. The king of Syria notices that Israel is weak. Israel is vulnerable, maybe unlike any other time. And the king of Syria is salivating to just devastate Israel. And so he marshals his massive host to come against Israel. And yet, no matter where he goes, all of Israel seems to know it. And so even though they don't have much, they take all of their army from all over their country and marshal it into the exact spot that would undermine the king of Syria's advances. And the king of Syria is bewildered by this. How would they be able to do that? And then he comes at him again. And they do it again. Comes at him again. And they do it again. And so the king of Syria has a hunch. There's a spy in and amongst his council. So he sits them down and he says, okay, guys, which one of you is the rat? Now, could you imagine if you're the rat, you're going to go, that's eh, me. Not sure what answer he was looking for. Which one of you is the rat? Because every time we go against Israel, Israel knows exactly what we're going to do. I know one of you is betraying me. One of the men has the guts to raise his hand, and he says, I, I'm not a rat, king, but I do know what's happening. There's a prophet in Israel known as Elisha, and Elisha knows what the king is saying in his bedchamber at night. And so what does the king think? That Elisha. He marshals all of his armies, which as far as we know, all it is is a great army. That's the description. I don't know if it's tens of thousands. It's a great army to come against a singular man named Elisha. Okay, we have an entire army coming against not a nation, but a man. Because if they can wipe out this man, guess what? Israel cannot stop them anymore. Against one man. I don't know how you're feeling in this story. Imagine that you're the man. Therefore he, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army. So Elisha technically has someone with him. Okay? It's his servant. And the servant's like, ah. ah. And he steps outside and he's like, um, uh, Elisha, Elisha, he comes back in. Surrounding the city with horses and chariots of fire, his servant said to him, alas, my master. The words sound familiar? Alas, my master, what shall we do? This is Elisha's answer. This is, this is refrigerator material. You write this quote down, stick it on your refrigerator. This is one of the best quotes in the Bible. So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them, said Elisha. Oh, and Elisha. Oh, that's a different sentence. Okay, so here's, here's our moment. You're surrounded by a mighty host, a great army. You have your servants and Elisha. Now, if you're the servant, you're going to be hearing this line, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure if he has uh, any capabilities in mathematics, but... One 
to. Any reasonable person would not conclude that two is a greater number than a great host. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay, is that a good story or what? Now, that's epic. In fact, you haven't even heard the epic part, and I'm going to focus on it. You know what Elisha, Elisha does next? He blinds all of the men of the host, blinds them all, speaks it, they're blind. An entire army went blind because of Elisha. And then he led them into captivity in Israel. They're like, how, oh, oh, oh. And he leads them into captivity. They become the servants of Israel. He took down an entire army. Just standing there, fear not. <laughs> How are you responding in your soul? You see, if you don't train on the axe head, you will not be ready to stand firm and say, fear not. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You must have eyes to see what the king wants us to be seeing. But you must train your eyes on accents. You must train your eyes on little molehills. And then God will expand you from molehills unto mountains. And you will see a mountain picked up and thrown into the sea even before you ask it to be done. And you will have a confidence and an assurance that that which God must accomplish will be done. You will see fire come down from heaven and consume the altar even before you ask for it. And in faith, you will know it will happen. The church of Jesus Christ must be built on Jesus, on the promises of God, on the assurance that he is able to perform all that he promises. The Sheep Brigade. <laughs> this is uh, excerpted out of a message that we gave on Friday called Unstoppable to all the students. And it's basically saying that we as the church of Jesus Christ are weak. We can't do this. Look at Elisha. He's, as far as we know, he's one of those old guys with a long white beard. You come up to that guy and you push him over. He's like, comes, you know, toppling backwards. He has no physical presence that would intimidate a great and mighty host of Syrians. And either do we. In the natural sense, we're a sheep brigade. <laughs> and it's like this chorus of <laughs> We need to do a recording of that somehow. <laughs> we are not intimidating to a wolf pack. If we march on a wolf pack in the natural sense, do you think even a singular wolf would be intimidated by even a thousand sheep marching against them? Sheep are not built to fight. Sheep have no capacity for war. And yet, God chooses the mechanism of a sheep to take down the wolves. This is his way. I realize that the sheep brigade may look weak, but look a little closer and you will find that these little lambs have the faces of lions. They're super conquering. They are more than conquerors. They are bequeathed all power and authority. They are seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly position of power and authority. They're given power over all the power of the enemy to tread upon their high places. 
They're immovable and invincible, able to repel all the fiery darts of the enemy, able to tread on lions, adders, serpents, scorpions, and dragons, able to drink poison and be unharmed. A thousand shall fall at their side and ten thousand at their right hand, but it shall not come near them. There shall not a hair of their head perish. Jesus gives unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of his hand. They are fearless. The Lord is their light and their salvation, so whom shall they fear? The Lord is the strength of their life, so of whom shall they be afraid? Though a host should encamp against them, their heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against them, they remain confident in their God. Because God will never leave them nor forsake them, and he ever lives to make intercession for them. God is their refuge and strength, a very present help in their trouble. Therefore, they will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against them shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against them in judgment, God shall condemn. And they are unstoppable. The Lord is with them as a mighty, terrible one. The gates of hell shall not prevail against them. Whatsoever they shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever they shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. In other words, he'll take one of you or he'll take all of you. He doesn't care, but he will accomplish his agenda even with one of you. Even with one Elisha, he will take down the armies, but he desires a mighty host of his own. Greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. Since God is for them, who can be against them? It's Kilan, and he saw. There is something that we need. I don't know what obstacles you are facing today, whether they're molehill level or whether they are a great army of the Syrians level. I feel like I'm acquainted with both. And at different times in my life, I have a lot of molehills. And at different times in my life, I'm surrounded by Syrians. I know both. However, in the construction of Eric Ludi, I see God building me to be able to see something. And that's to see the mountain surrounding, full of horses and chariots of fire. And I find myself, whereas before I would literally fear, and I would be paralyzed with trepidation, I find myself standing strong. Now, look at the formation of his servant here. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. What's the prayer of the prophet? Open his eyes. What is God desiring for us? Open his eyes. Open her eyes that she, he, would see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. What's the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ? If we were to liken Elisha to the church, that the church in the most desperate hour stands, and that those new young recruits around say, but alas, master, for we are surrounded. You need not fear, little one, for those that are with us are greater than those with them. And what do we pray? Oh, God, open his eyes. Open his eyes. For us to be effective in our ministry, the very last line here is what needs to happen in and through us. And he and she saw. What's faith? That's faith. Faith is the seen. It's something that's unseen, but you still see it. You know it's there, and you have confidence to stand there unmoved. God, take care of this army. Blind them. You're not staggered. 
at the enemy's proposal. He lays his evidence before you and says, how can you possibly come against that? And you could say, how could you possibly think that anything you lay on the table could outdo my God? I see my God. I know my God. And my God is able. Ellerslie students, I know we still have graduation this afternoon. If there is any great desire I have to see gained in you in and through these nine weeks, it's that it would be said of you, and he or she saw. You saw it. At first, the little acts had seemed so trivial, and now you've seen iron float, and you have reached in and grabbed it, and the house of God has been constructed. And as the house of God is constructed, then we become strong when we are surrounded by the mighty host. And we do not shake and tremble at their boastings. But we remain confident, fearless, unstoppable, and invincible, and immovable in Jesus Christ. Do you know your position, saints of God? Do you know that if you are in Christ, the enemy cannot use you as his plaything? Do you realize that if you're in Jesus Christ, it's the equivalent of being in a strong tower with walls of diamond miles thick? And you take a little fiery arrow and you shoot it at that wall and I guarantee you, it cannot reach you anymore. Because you are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are secure. Though your body and your blood may be poured out, that which is eternal in you will be guarded until the day of Christ Jesus. And the enemy cannot harass you. The enemy can no longer accuse you. The enemy cannot sink you in the waters. You will rise up and be useful in the hand of your God to construct the church of Jesus Christ in this age. You are that exit. We could describe that axe head in so many different ways, but you are meant to be a tool in the hand of God to fell timber in this generation. I know what they say. Timber can no longer be felled. But we're here to say as the church united from all denominations, all denominations with all sorts of different nuances and peripheral biases, we come together and we say, Jesus and him crucified. We fix our compass to it. And we, sell, we say no matter what the enemy brings against us, he cannot overcome us. Greater is he that is in us, the church of Jesus Christ, than he that is in this world. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.